can be seated. If you have children, you can dismiss them to children's ministry. Well, we're wrapping up our time in Acts 2. Every chapter won't be as long as this particular chapter has been. Uh, But that final section in Acts 2, uh, 42 through 46, is just full of important ideas and important words that are just loaded with meaning and implication. So when we get to the idea of teaching, for instance, in Acts 2.42, or fellowship, or prayer, or the breaking of bread, or generosity, or the idea of day-by-day meeting with the saints, like we kind of need to take a pause when we get to those concepts and, and seek out more information from the scriptures about each, each one of those and what they mean. And we're going to be wrapping up our time in Acts 2 by looking at this word saved that appears at the end of Acts 2. And it says there at the end, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we're going to take a few weeks to examine what does that mean? What does the word saved mean? And our first text to kind of help us understand this word, I think should be Luke 23, verse 32 through 43 or so. So if you haven't opened your Bibles there yet, would you? Luke 23, starting in verse 32, they're asking this question, you know, what, is it, what does saved mean? What's the word mean? Uh, Acts, or Luke 23, uh, verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, Jesus, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Let me explain why I think this is an important passage as we begin thinking about this word saved. When you start talking about a word, you probably ought to come up with a definition, right? And this is one of those passages that shows an ongoing problem throughout Jesus's ministry. As I studied the use of the word saved, in the Gospels, I kept finding this really frustrating problem popping up over and over and over again. So when Jesus would use the word saved, he would refer to sort of a salvation from the wrath of God, a salvation from sins. So in Luke 19.10, for instance, when Jesus uses the word saved, he says, you know, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Or in John 10.9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and uh, go in and out and find pasture. So when Jesus talks about, when Jesus uses the word saved, he's talking about salvation, eternal salvation from sins. But then you get to this frustrating, repeated situation where pretty much everybody else that's using the word saved doesn't have that in mind. We've got two different definitions going on here. Jesus is talking about salvation from sins, and pretty much everybody else that uses the word is using the word saved to mean saved from situational, circumstantial suffering. And Luke 23 is a prime example of that, 
where they say to him, not once, not twice, but three times, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? They're saying, why don't you save yourself from the circumstantial suffering that you find yourself in in this moment? Now, that's two different definitions of saved, right? Now, that seems to be, just as an aside, seems to be sort of the fault line for false gospels. The fault line, the dividing line for false gospels seems to be using the word saved to reference God delivering us from something that is not mostly spiritual in nature. So, for instance, the prosperity gospel is salvation from what? Sickness and poverty, right? The social gospel is salvation from injustice. The therapeutic gospel is salvation from uh, anxiety and low self-esteem. So what appears to be happening, even as we look at the distortions of the gospel in our culture, what appears to be happening is that there's a fault line. There's a dividing line, and it has to do with what you think you're being saved from, what you think God is saving you from. And the people that were walking with Jesus and the people that were there at the crucifixion had this secondary definition, a different definition than Jesus. They thought of salvation as something circumstantial. Now, if that was just what happened to people who came up with formal theology, like the founders of the therapeutic gospel or whatever, like if this was just a formal theological problem, so what? But it ain't, of course, right? Like we are constantly battling between operating under Jesus's definition of saved and our definition of saved, which is quite different. So go back to Luke 23, and I want you to see, I want you to see, uh, first of all, two different groups saying the same thing. First of all, in verse 35, the rulers say this sentence. They say, you know, if you, if you saved others, you, you haven't saved yourself. In verse 37, you have another group of people at the cross, the soldiers, and they come mocking him, and they say, hey, you know, if you're the king, save yourself. But then again in verse 39, a third person comes onto the scene, one of the criminals that's crucified with Jesus, and the criminal says the exact same thing. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So what you've got here in a literary sense is you've got three occurrences of three wildly different kinds of people with wildly different worldviews and perspectives, all assuming that salvation means being removed from circumstantial hardship and danger. And so when they say to Jesus, suffering on the cross, save yourself, they're operating under this default definition that I think all humans have, and that is, is that salvation is mostly circumstantial. I think it's important to understand that that is the default of your heart. That's, that, that's, that's where your heart goes when it is not being constantly cared for and attended to. Your heart will go to viewing your circumstances as the greatest manifestation or demonstration of God's goodness, power, and love. And when we operate under this human merely human definition of salvation, we tend to do two things. We tend to view salvation from sin as cheap, distant, and unimportant. And we tend to view circumstantial salvation 
as the real test of God's goodness and power. I think it's important before we go any further in this text just to understand that if three wildly different groups of people all look and see Jesus on a cross and say the same thing, if you are God, save yourself, then the broadest message we could apply is to understand that's what people do, and I'm a people. That's what my heart does. My heart looks at the circumstances, my heart looks at my situation, and then insists that if God were good, he would change it. That's where we are. That's the default. And because of that, we enter into repeatedly seasons of disappointment and even derision. Derision is what we see here, right? Uh, railed and scoffed and mocked. But, but when we are operating under this human view of salvation, that God's goodness is displayed through his uh, care for us in external circumstances, namely, and that what the gospel is for is to improve our lives, first and foremost, when we operate under those assumptions, uh, and God will fail to, to live up to our definition, just so you know, he's not, he's not going to join you in, in your definition of saved. He has one. It's, it's a better one. It's the right one. But so often, not just with you and God, but just with you and somebody else, all of the really fruitless conversations, painful relationships full of conflict and disappointment involve two people having different definitions for the same words. You ever notice that? Like, like all sorts of conflict and trouble and pain in our culture right now is caused by a group of people talking right past each other who use the word love but mean something different who use the word justice but mean something different, who use the word tolerance but mean something different, who use the word freedom to mean something different. Friends, this is what kills a marriage. Two people using different definitions for the same words, and they can never communicate. They can never get past the basic problem because they keep using the words that the other one's using, but they mean different things. So much of our disappointment and derision toward God stems from exactly the same thing. He is at work to save us. He is at work to love us. He is at work to make us free, but not in the way that we default think of loved, saved, and free. And so we join, whether we do it in a really hot way, in a derisive way, or in a really cool way, in a disappointment way, we join with these three entities we see at the cross who are said to scoff and mock and rail. And maybe we just sigh or ignore or shrug when we think, based on our circumstances, God's not a savior. He's not saving me. God's not loving me right now. God's not helping me. This disparity between what God means by love and what we mean by love, between what God means by saved and what we mean by saved, it's the root of all sorts of hot and cold hostility toward God. It's because you've got a definition for something he promised and you don't see him coming through according to your definition. 
So one of the interesting things that's happening at the cross is we can't forget, we can't forget that the cross is God's idea and that God is the one holding a crucifixion that day. One of the interesting things we think about when we think about the to understand that one of the things that God's doing at the cross is he's crucifying all of your crappy definitions. Like he's showing you how small and pointless wanting a long life is apart from Christ. He's showing you how stupid a good reputation is apart from Christ. He's showing you how safety from pain is not worth living for. He's showing you the uselessness of earthly position and power. I think the disappointment is running in both directions right now at the cross. I think that people are looking at someone they hoped was the Christ, and they're seeing his inability to deliver himself from circumstantial pain, and they're disappointed in the whole idea of a Christ. And I think the greater disappointment, the one that really matters, is coming from God as he looks at a group of people who have worshipped reputation, who have worshipped long life, who have worshipped health, who have worshipped safety. And he's like, look, on display right now is my opinion of those things apart from me. The cross is God's opportunity to publicly mock and deride so many of the idols we unknowingly invest our entire lives in into pursuing. The cross is God's billboard that says, here's what I think of these things apart from me. So let's look at this phrase. He saved others. He saved others. We had this passion play growing up in my church and I was uh, a snarky teenager by the point when we, we got the new passion play. And of course, everybody in these churches, you know, they play the same role year after year. And so when I hear certain, when I hear certain words, uh, it, when I read certain words in the scripture, I hear them in the voice of the person who said that year after year after year in my childhood and teenage years. And I don't remember this lady's name, but I know she had a rough background and she was saved. And maybe she didn't fit in all the time in, in certain environments. But she was the one who had this line. And I remember her saying it over and over again every year at Concord Baptist Church. He saved others, but he can't save himself. (laughs) It's like they nailed the perfect person (laughs) for that line. Like the disappointed wife, you know. Like he saved others, but he can't save himself. And so when I read this, it has that tone. And I'm like, ah! But that's not really far off of the tone you should probably imagine when you're thinking about the crowd looking up at someone who claimed to be the life and the resurrection and see him on a cross and to say he saved others, but he can't save himself. What do they mean? Again, what do they mean when they use the word saved? Well, they mean he gave blind men their sight And he healed a woman when countless doctors could not. And he made the lame walk. And he fixed their bodies. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. What they mean is that the man they see on the cross 
helped people in their earthly circumstances. But were they right? Did he save them? Not without the cross he didn't. Not the kind of salvation he was going for. On I-35, just outside the church, there's frequently a car broken down. Uh, it just seems to be a place that, where that happens. Maybe one day we'll find out there was a government conspiracy at play or that something was going on. But uh, there's a car. It seems like there's always a car broken down. Sometimes when I'm coming into the building, I'll see the person. And almost always it's a guy. And I, I, don't, I don't pull over and help guys. They, they're good. Must, you know. But if it's, if, it's, if it's a single mother or something like that, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can help. But so, so just imagine the situation. You know, I'm coming into the church, and there's a, a woman in a, just a broken-down old heap of a minivan. You know, still got the wood paneling kind of on the sides. And, uh, and she's just dead there, and she's got three kids in the back of the van, and no doubt, you know, thousands of French fries lost on the carpet. And she's sitting there, and it's hot outside, and she's just stuck. What do you do when you're broken down with three kids and this minivan on an interstate? And I hop over the concrete barrier and I say, hey, can I take a look? And, you know, I, I try to look very, you know, uh, non-threatening. Hey, can I take a look at your car? And, yeah, and so we pop the hood and I play with it a little bit and realize that it's very likely that the alternator's gone out by the way she describes it. And so the whole thing's just not going to fire until we get a new battery in there and then an alternator. And so... I shoot up to O'Reilly and I grab a battery to put the battery in. That's good enough to at least get it going. And then we get her up to the Applebee's parking lot. And I, there are a few things I know how to do with cars. And one of them is put alternators in. So I take two hours. And I put an alternator in this minivan. And, uh, and she's got her kids. I give her some money to take the kids into Applebee's to get some hamburgers. And then she looks at me after all this is done, three-hour ordeal. She looks at me and says, thank you. You really saved me. Now, beyond the question of what her meaning of salvation is. The truth is, is that the answer to, to, to what she just said is for now, because your van is a heap. And a hundred miles from now, the same thing's going to happen with another part. Like that's, that's the reality for every one of us with our bodies, our safety, our finances, our jobs, our relationships. It's like, You want God to intervene and fix this. Great. He'll change the alternator, but a hundred miles down the road, it'll be something else. You see, the eyes of the blind men would eventually close in death and the legs of the lame would eventually stop working again. And the leper's skin would eventually decay in the grave and Lazarus would die again. And so saved can't just mean get me a little further down the road, can it? That's not, that's not what we need. We don't need just another couple miles down the road. Our need's way, way bigger than that. Let's lock into the second part of that phrase. He saved others. Let him save himself. Could Jesus have changed his circumstances in that moment? Of course. You know, we can't. Someone helps us. We, we have a medical miracle. We have deliverance from our finances, financial situation. Our, our marriage improves. Great. But the next time, it's coming. It's coming. It's just going to come because we're all driving 1987 Plymouth minivans, really. You know, that's our lives. 
And it's coming, and you don't have any power to really do anything about that. It's just going to happen. But Jesus is on the cross, and they say to him, save yourself. And the truth is, he's the one person who could. He's the one person who could remove himself from the cross. But the eternal salvation that he was seeking to accomplish demanded circumstantial suffering. It required it. He must be delivered, as, he's, as it's said in, in Luke 24. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. He must be lifted up. Why? Because the salvation he is seeking goes far beyond getting you and your heap another hundred miles on the same old road. So I want to make some application right now. If you're a Christian here and Jesus has saved you from hell and brought you into his family and you are suffering, and I want you to know that your suffering is necessary. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to understand that the suffering you are enduring is necessary. Necessary. Because if it were not necessary, it would not be. Jesus has proven himself in millions of ways you don't even know about. That he is more than willing to deliver you from difficult circumstances. And if he is not delivering you now, it is because he aims to produce through this suffering a greater, deeper weight of eternal glory. And this is what Peter tells the suffering Christians when he writes them a letter. First thing almost in his letter to the suffering Christians. If necessary, you have grieved, been grieved by various trials. If necessary, necessary. Jesus could have taken himself off the cross. but His suffering was necessary. And that's the only reason he stayed there. And Christians, as you are in Christ and you are suffering, pray for deliverance, pray for a new alternator. Do it. You wouldn't be honoring your father if you didn't ask. But do not, do not, please resist the temptation of disappointment or even derision if he chooses not to deliver you from your circumstances. It does not mean he is not saving you. It means he has and will continue to work out your salvation. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. And he aims to get you much further down the road than what you could ask or imagine. And he aims to make you his forever. I also want to speak to those who are not followers of Jesus, who may be here or listening online. Almost all the time when someone who doesn't follow Jesus, who doesn't have a a daily personal relationship with Jesus, wanders into a church or listens to a sermon online, almost always it's because God has allowed some circumstantial suffering to come into their life. And they're looking for something to help. They're looking for something. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you don't know if you know Jesus, if, if you're listening online and you don't know if you know Jesus, listen, I want you to understand something. The pain you're going through now 
is God's gift to you to help you to seek a better country, a better country. He's helping you to seek a higher way, a deeper way, and a greater salvation. If he has allowed your addiction to grip you or your spouse to hurt you or your body to fail you or your stress or sadness to get high enough to make you desperate for a solution, even like listening to me for a second, what you're going to think in these moments of deep suffering, if you don't know Jesus, is that this hurts like hell. But I want you to really consider what I say when I say that this isn't hell. And hell is much, much worse. And what you're tasting right now is just a tiny sampling of eternal suffering that will come to all of those who do not in this life bend their knee to Jesus and choose to live for him. Even the language confusion when someone would say, man, this hurts like hell. We're getting our definitions mixed up, aren't we? There's something much, much worse. I'm a pretty compassionate guy. Most of the time, I guess, uh, if someone needs help, I want to help them. I don't think my time's worth more than anybody else's. I can't always do everything, but I want to try. And so if someone's listening to this, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus and you're going through circumstantial problems like addiction or difficult marriage or financial troubles, like, listen, I want to help. I want to help with those things. I want to help bind up the wound. I want to help give my time and resources. And right now I'm speaking on behalf of other people who uh, will do the same. Jesus did that all the time. He helped people with their circumstances, but he always did that to lead them to see that whatever hardship and difficulty they were going on, that was going on in their external lives was simply a tiny fraction of, of the danger and difficulty their soul was facing in that very moment, being estranged from God. And the great temptation, as the church reaches out and cares for people that have temporal needs, the great temptation for those people, seen it a million times, is to say, thank you. I want help with my light bill, but not the darkness in my heart. I want help with my relationship with my spouse or my parents, but not with my relationship with God. And so make no mistake, that's not just a a problem that people without Jesus have. This is the great thing about caring for people who don't know Jesus, who have real needs. It's like, I get it. I understand. You want me to help you with your light bill, but you're scared to death of me talking to you about your heart. I get it, because that's me too. Like, I want, I want the Band-Aid too. I want the alternator too. But Jesus just insists on more. And so as I address directly those who don't know Jesus, I'm just letting you know, just be warned that this circumstantial need and the way this story is unfolding might be the fact that he's created this need as a way to lure you into something much bigger. And I hope he helps you with your need, but I bet you if he does, he'll also grab you and swallow you whole and make you his. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Because if you looked at all the pain and where it's coming from in your life, what percentage is self-inflicted? 
I really hope for those that don't know Jesus and they're dealing with this, that God uses our circumstantial pain to draw us to him and we very often try to grab the solution and run far away again. But there's one hero that's not Jesus in this story. You know, you've got these three wildly different people all exclaiming false views of salvation and there's this one thief, this one undeserving, guilty man who's experiencing physical, except circumstantial suffering because he deserves to. And he's the other thief, right, at the cross. And, and, and somehow, through God's gift of faith, he's able to see that what Jesus is is so much deeper than the kind of person who would just pull him off of a cross. What he's able to see is that what he really needs, and this is so key, what he really needs is not really to be saved from something, but to be saved into something. And so he says to Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Somehow he understands, really only through the gift of faith that the Holy Spirit works on us when we don't even know he's doing it, somehow he understands that this external circumstantial suffering that he's dealing with is really not the main story of his life, that he's going to live forever somewhere. And that this person who's next to him isn't on the cross because he's stuck there, but because he's chosen to be there to provide a much deeper salvation than anybody else in the scene really understands. Somehow this thief knows that. So he says, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you today, you, Mr. Thief, will be with me in paradise. Third point of application is simply that the sufferings of Christ are necessary. Jesus didn't die on the cross to fix your marriage, your anxiety, or your addiction only to let your soul burn in hell. Jesus says in Mark, 30, Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus isn't on a cross to make your self-esteem better. Not, not, not mostly and definitely not only. Jesus isn't on a cross to fix your marriage or your addiction or your health, Jesus is on a cross to save your soul, which is the most valuable thing you have. And it would be a shame if your interactions with God over your lifespan came mostly when you were in trouble and you asked God to bail you out. And the greatest tragedy, this is tragic and true, the greatest tragedy is many times he will and you go on down the road not thinking at all about your soul. Not thinking all about where you'll spend eternity. But that's the whole thing is Jesus went to the cross to save you from the greatest danger, your sin. He died on the cross to redeem you from the bondage of your sin. And if he was merely a circumstantial savior, which is really what we all want, we don't want him to mess with our souls. We don't want him to mess with our hearts. But if Jesus, this is just true, if Jesus were only a circumstantial savior, you would not find him on a cross. Hung between heaven and earth, on the edge of life and death. He went to the cross to do business 
with God on behalf of man, he is suspended between the great quarrel. Our anger and disappointment with God, which is completely blasphemous, and God's righteous anger and disappointment with us. And he's there on the cross doing business on our behalf, bearing our sin and saving our soul. Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad, was in charge of naming him. And an angel appeared to Joseph when he was still unsure, like, why would I marry this woman who's claims to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That's pretty weird. Why would I do this? And an angel appears to him and says, you should name him Joseph, which means, you know, God saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. So as we begin our series on the word saved, we see how dangerous different definitions are. We see how dangerous it is to use the same verb, but have different values. God, give us grace to value the things you value. So when we look at the verb save, we know, we know what you mean. Let me pray for us and lead us through communion. Gracious God, we praise your holy name for the salvation, the great salvation you have offered to us. You're not indifferent to any part of us, any season of our life any element of our life. You care about all of it. Emotions, body, money, time, everything. And yet, Lord, you start with our souls. You start by redeeming our souls, by saving us from our sin. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for staying on the cross, being indifferent to the derision and the mocking and even the soft disappointment from the disciples on the edge of the scene for staying resolute, for being a resolute Savior who died as a sacrifice for our sins. God, get this word in our hearts in the way that you mean it to be so that we, Lord, rightly call out to you, you are such a great Savior. Thank you for being our Savior, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.